Hi, my name is Drew Smith from IAA, and you're listening to Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian O'Neill, and I have Drew Smith from the IAA here, International Institute for Analytics. Drew, how's it going? Very good. Thank you for getting the acronym in the full name. Now I don't have to say International Institute for Analytics, but I just did. Yes. It's a lot of words in there, and you, you run the Analytics Leadership Consortium. What is that? Why not throw in even more words and yeah. more strange words? So the Analytics Leadership Consortium is a closed roundtable of analytics executives from different companies and different industries who meet regularly to discuss both analytics best practices and analytics innovations. And really happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great to have you. We've been chatting for a while. I've known IA for... It's, I, I have to actually give some props to IA because actually uh, it was David Alice. I remember meeting him in the hallway at, at Strata... New York, I think 2017 or something. It was like my first big speaking gig. We got lost in the hallway and like met. And he was really interested in the work that I was doing because I was very much in the kind of seed stage of like figuring out, does anyone care about human-centered design and user experience in this world of internal analytics, not in the software space so much, but in the, you know, the enterprise space. And he seemed really interested. And, and so I appreciate that you guys were willing to you know, amplify some of the work that I was doing and my ideas and stuff. So props to IA for that. Um, and we've gotten to know each other in the data strategy show and Samir and, and a bunch of stuff. So I wanted to have you on here to talk a little bit about your perspectives on, I think strategy is kind of misunderstood. And at the same time, we're having this big problem with adoption of data products. So the things that data science and analytics teams use whether they're applications or dashboards or models or all these things that were going on in the factory. And yet 20 years later, the surveys I read and the, the stuff I hear over the phone and calls and clients and seminar students, they're still low use. Like what is broken? <laughs> Why is this so broken after now decades? It's like you just changed the marketing terms for these things and it's still broken. What is broken? Why is it broken? Let's start with the simple <laughs> questions. Yeah, but you know what? I, I'm going to take you one further. It's broken and getting more brokener. So it's bad and getting worse. That's at least what the surveys say. And it's worse from two vectors, right? So it, it's worse because it's worse from maybe several vectors. So let, let's start with the, with the fact that people use data-informed products to make their life better every day. When they were allowed to travel, it's how they got to the airport via Uber. Now that they're not allowed to travel, they've mm. forgotten how brilliant the algorithm is that recommends the next Netflix show and all of that stuff, right? And even things they don't know has happened, whether it's changes in what kind of toilet paper is being advertised to them. So people are really using these products and appreciating them as products uh, or services, maybe not knowing they're data-driven, but that doesn't matter. So that is creating a little feeling for people that this should be easier. Like, how come I can get an Uber faster than I can get my sales figures? Like, this doesn't make sense. There's just a little cognitive dissonance between what I live in my life and what I live at my work. The other reason it's, so that makes it an expectations gap, right? So now I, I think you and my internal analytics team should be doing much better than you are. And then the other thing is, I think people have become focused on the wrong things. I think they've become focused on the, the volume of data or the diversity of data or any of the Vs you want to use. And they've been focused on the technology because they think, and they've been told the technology will save them, right? A larger cloud footprint will save you. A new data tool, data IQ, data bricks, data robot. I thought Snowflake was saving the world right now. As of eight, May 4th, 2021, aren't they the ones saving the world? <laughs> They, well, they're, they're saving the world and making a whole lot of people very wealthy. So, you know, <laughs> two. No, but you're right, right? So Snowflake is a great example. And actually, I know people who use Snowflake. I know Snowflake people. It actually is a pretty yeah. good technology, but it is amazing how people obsess about this stuff, right? Yeah. I think yeah. it's really fascinating even listening to 
leftist hippie radio NPR, there's advertisements selling AI software. Yeah. So, so I, I was driving the other day and I was feeling just so badly for my clients who must have to have someone in the marketing team come in and say, oh, you know what I heard on NPR today in between, you know, the weather and a news report about the Biden administration was that now we can do AI everywhere in the enterprise. Like, right. please give me AI everywhere in the enterprise. <laughs> so you have a lot of growth in the use of, of genuine products of value. I don't, yeah. you know, Uber, Lyft, whatever you want to pick. You have a growth and awareness that this should be something we should be able to do. And then you have a wrong focus, in my point of view, on the technology that does the thing. And as a result, I think people are saying, I'm not sure about this data and analytics thing anymore. Five years ago, you told me it would be big and it hasn't been big yet. And I'm a little skeptical. So we see that in the figures. There's a couple of different people who are not IAA who have reported on this. And, you know, Randy being a new Vantage Partners and some other people uh, we have it in our own internal research, but we tend to do client requested research for clients only. So I'm not going to go out and say who has said it's getting worse, but we have indications that it's getting worse, that this whole data products don't get used is becoming worse. And that's something wow. we, as an industry we need to take responsibility for. Do you think that you have to wait for a crop of people to lose their job and then this changes because a new crop of leaders will come in and say it's not the technology is not going to save us? Or is there a learning that like, I mean, at some point they're going to stop funding these initiatives if they don't start returning some value. And from a design lens, the way I always see this is like, there's two hops. There, there's really the hop from no one uses it to somebody uses it. And then there's someone uses it to value and you can't bypass the middle one. And a lot of places are just getting from the zero to one, not the one to two challenge. So how do we get to zero to one? But is this an incentives problem? Is this a leadership problem? Because someone needs to invest in zero to one, right? And if the leaders are the ones that are looking at technology to save every one of these initiatives, then what's left, I guess? Like, because they're the ones buying the stuff. They're the ones writing the, you know, saying, I'm signing on the line. I'm going, and I'm no ding to Snowflake. I don't know anything about Snowflake. I don't care about that. But the point, the point there is, you know, they are also the ones buying these services. So yeah, I, I think actually... I firmly believe, and it was interesting, I was talking to somebody who I'd never talked to before, and we came to sort of a similar conclusion. I think what the way it's going to get fixed is I think you're going to have a decentralization of analytics back to functional areas. Uh, and why I think this will fix it and why I think this will help us get from zero to one and then from two and then from two to 20 and two to 200 is a couple things. One, I think the thought of scale meant you went from zero to one to two to 200,000. When in reality, that data product could never be good enough for 200,000 people. It's good enough for 200 people. So there is a resetting of expectations when it comes back to functional analytics. When functional analytics comes back to being the thing, what you'll find, and I don't mean, I don't mean specifically functional analytics back to silos. We can talk about that in a sec, but what I mean is the person working with the analytics people is much more likely to the person who says, this is my business problem. This is what I'm prepared to do differently with my business process based on the data and the insights I might get through your data product and to be much more active in the process of creating the data product to start with. I think when that happens, maybe it's the distance between the zero and one gets shorter. And the mm -hmm. distance between the one and the two gets shorter and the distance between the two and 200 gets shorter. So I think what's going to have to happen is people are going to have to then re-engineer a bit of their technological landscape. And in fairness, some of the structure is already there in a good way. We've already battered Snowflake, but we can say nice things, which is that they're actually relatively easy to access data in Snowflake from different functional organizations. So you don't need to reorganize, re-engineer your data pipes. It's the same thing with much of the cloud infrastructure. Then it will be interesting to see if functional areas take advantage, and I mean that in a, in a very positive way, of the things that central analytics have done, but hasn't yet materialized in value. And specifically those things that they have done, but hasn't gotten value yet, is they've built data infrastructure, they've built metadata, they've built a way of working with data, they've built different pipelines depending upon the latency. They've done things that really are 
needed to be done. It's just that they haven't yet returned any value to the person who really needs to change the way she makes a decision. So I think as we go from a centralized to a functional and the firms that keep all of the good stuff with centralized and pitch out the stuff that doesn't work, I think we'll start to see some changes there. And of course, companies are really weird organisms. And the bigger the company, the weirder the organism. If one function manages to leverage all the power of the central and make it more user-friendly for the function, that pattern will be seen. That pattern will repeat as people see they want to be as successful as, say, the marketing department or the product department or the supply chain department. As you were talking about this, I guess I, guess I wonder about the and I'm not saying customers shouldn't have some level of self-service access to information, but I kind of wonder if that overall strategy of we need to open up data Home Depot and all these different neighborhoods. And as long as there's a Home Depot there, people will make things. But it's like, well, there's a lot of contractors that actually shop at Home Depot. You know, it's not you know, a lot of homeowners aren't going in and building an entire garage themselves. So I always wonder, is that if we decentralize and just change the management, is there still not a skill gap that needs to be filled? And, and should the data scientists and the and the analytics leader and the BI consultants, should they be the ones that are doing the work to help the business people frame problems, to model decisions? All the upstream work that happens before you write any code or you do anything, it's just to understand what are you going, what decisions are we going to make? How do you make them now? What's it like to be you all day long, dear finance controller or whatever, you know. Does that work still need to happen, even if we decentralize? Yeah, I mean, it still needs to happen, I think, for a couple of reasons. First, I, I'm going to admit I had trouble tracking your question because I'm in love with the analogy. I think it's it's freaking brilliant. I think the Home Depot one is really, truly brilliant because of exactly what you said, right? There's people like me who I'm OK. I can hammer a nail or two, right? Yeah, but yeah. if you said to me, go to Home Depot so you can replace your windows, oh, no way. Right. No yeah. way. Rain comes in the windows. I know what happens if I do that wrong. Yeah. So I, I think you're exactly right that the environment needs to be built and can be built, by the way, yeah. to cater yeah. to hobbyists and craftsmen alike. It can be built to enable you to build, you know, to, to make a better lawn and to add an addition to your house, have someone add an addition to your house. So I think your allegory is great. I think the key thing though is you still need to know what problems people face in order to structure that environment correctly. That's what I meant when I said central analytics should stay because there still needs to be interaction with the data engineers and the data scientists or data analysts within the functional team. And there needs to be somebody who says, oh, you know, these three functions are typically asking for this kind of data at this kind of frequency, at this kind of granularity. Okay, good. Central team, we're going to take care to shape that up in a good way. And we're taking yeah. it at face value that you, as the data person in a function, and I'm trying to avoid titles here, right? Yeah, yeah. You, as a data person in the function, have understood well enough the business problem, and you understand well enough the data and the infrastructure to engage with us in the data engineering or the central data team to make the right decisions. But you're totally right that the, that the starting point of that if statement is, if I understand your business problem well enough and I understand enough about data, I can start to build out the infrastructure to answer your business problem. But the starting point of the statement is, if I understand your business problem well enough. And yeah. I do think there's still work to be done there. And the one thing I, reject is that there's only one way to do that. I think mm -hmm. if you talk to a consultancy that uses a lot of blue font, they're going to tell you uh, that you have to have an analytics or a business translator. If you talk to a big consultancy that uses only green font, they're going to tell you that you need to clean your whole house out and bring only digitally native people in to be extreme about it. But it, you can do either of those things. You can do rigorous upskilling programs. You can do continuous learning. You have to decide how you want to bridge the gap between your business and your data knowledge. But you, you have to acknowledge there's a gap and then you have to work to bridge that gap. If you and I are those opposite sides and we're crossing the GW bridge and I'm coming from Jersey and you're coming from New York, who needs to come farther over that bridge? 
who has more work to do to meet the other person somewhere or does only one person crossing little New York analogy because I was thinking about like Home Depot's and like Chelsea and East Village and Brooklyn. We got them all over now. Everything you need. So that's why I'm using, I guess, the New York's in my head. (laughs) I'm schizophrenic on that one. I'm going to admit to schizophrenia on that one. I'm going to answer the question in two different ways because my first schizophrenia is I'm willing to push business people. I'm either not schizophrenic. I'm a little more aggressive on this one. I'm willing to push business people a little further than many data people are and nearly all business people are. What I mean by further is I'm actually willing to say that some of the more active decision makers in some of the more data-driven functions, and by that I mean marketing, sales, uh, supply chain logistics, I'm willing to say those people need to conceptually understand the different types of algorithms or models or whatever term you want to use that might make their business better and why. I'm not saying they need to understand Bayesian statistics. I'm not saying they need to understand exactly how to program a near neighbor, nearest neighbor, right? But I am saying they need to sort of go at least understand a few things. For example, well, if I get more data and I run a more sophisticated algorithm, it's likely to take more time It could be a bit more fragile, but I might get deeper insights. They need to at least understand that conceptually that's a trade-off against if I run a rather quick and easy and dirty, simple algorithm, you know, linear regression, you know, up-down algorithm, whatever it is, I'm going to get approximately right, but I'm going to get approximately fast. So I'm willing to push business leaders to say they need to go a little further down that data bridge than some people say they need to do. And at the same time, I'm willing to push analytics people a little further down the bridge. And where I push them further than most is it's all well and good if you say, oh, I understand that we're having trouble reaching the target demographic of 18 to 49 year olds who buy sneakers more than four times a year, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. People think, oh, then I understand the business. No, I think you need to understand how is the marketing department willing to change to reach those people. Because yeah. eventually your data product will, if done properly, will likely challenge the way they work. And they might be really interested in sort of branding and being the next coolest thing, Instagram influencers, whatever's cool, I don't really know. But really your, your thing might say, no, you need to take your prices down 20%. And they might say, I'm never taking my prices down. Right. You need to know that. You need to be prepared to engage in that discussion and that tough battle. So. In the answer to your question, I I take the cheap way out and I say both sides need to drive further from New Jersey or New York to meet in the middle. And then if we want to really abuse this analogy, they need to overlap. There needs to be a lot more overlap, I think, than there is today. Can I reframe that question? Yeah, because you don't like my answer. Uh, So you're looking for a better answer? I hear you. Here's a more helpful answer maybe to our listeners. So assuming listeners here are primarily leaders in data science and analytics teams, and they're not coming from the business side, what would be the signs that the problem is really more us, not them versus, wow, no, we're doing pretty solid here and they need to, you know, they need to change, which sounds terrible. But the point being, my effort needs to be deployed in a different way. Is there a way to know? Because I, I think we all tend to think that it's everyone else's job to change. We kind of joked about this, right? I love change when it's someone else that has to do it. Exactly. Okay, I understand why you reframed the question. I have maybe given our audience, I'll say it's our, I'm very proud to be on your show. I have maybe given our audience too much fodder to say, oh, it's the business guy's fault. This guy, Drew, he said it. He said they need to understand what an algorithm is. And so now I get to go yell at them. <laughs> now they can send this episode to their business. Exactly. Market. Just <laughs> and they're, de- they're technologists. So they're just going to snip out that part. We're all done. Right. <laughs> no, it's, it's a fair judgment. And I think I talk to business leaders and senior executives probably more than I talk to model builders and serious yeah. people who have every right to call themselves ML engineers or something. So I understand that I might be misconstrued. And, you know, I'll say it a different way. Let's go back to what we said. It's 20 years we've been doing this. 
and we're still just talking about the potential mostly and not talking about things getting actually used. So we better all accept that everyone has a lot of blame to shoulder. So data people need to accept that the way that they have been working is not working, right? And the primary things around the way they have been working is not working is by obsessing about things about the model when they need to obsess about utility of the model. So yeah. I would, if I had money to invest and I had a data team that was good at building really sophisticated models with really high levels of precision um, that every once in a while worked or, or every once in a while got used rather, where I had money to put on a fast and scrappy bunch that got models in production that were pretty much better than the way the business was doing now, I'd invest in the scrappy bunch all the time because those people have a couple of characteristics. First off, they're really obsessed about did the business get better because of what we did? Did the business get better what we did? They don't worry necessarily about the precision of the model outside it being you know ethical and accurate in that way. And the other thing is they're always going, why did that work? Wait, why did that work? Why did that not work? And that's the kind of data people we need is the people that go, wait, I know I'm brilliant. Cool. That's fine. That's all good. But it didn't work. Why didn't it work? I love the why question. I've often said that some of the most, my favorite data people when I worked at IKEA had the attitude of like a three-year-old, right? Why? Yeah, but why? Yeah, yeah. but why? Yeah, but why? Okay. Yeah. Now let me go build this thing. And then this is what you said, right? No. Okay, but why isn't what you said? And they don't get worked up about it. Yeah. They just go back and keep building. So yeah, I think data people need to accept that the, the outcome is not the model. But the outcome is a business performance, which is measurable and material and worth the change. That's the other thing. That's yeah. what I mean about knowing that process. You have to know that this is worth the change, worth the change mm -hmm. in the way I work worth the destruction of my ego, work, worth whatever. But I have to build something genuinely worthwhile. Yeah, I, I, you're preaching to the choir here. We talk about outcomes over outputs all the time here, and it's really understanding what is the downstream thing that emerges from the thing I made. It's that nobody really wants the thing you made. They just want the result of the thing you made. But we have to explore what that is earlier in the process and the why questioning. Very important. We call this laddering in the design space. That's how I learned it's called laddering. And you're always laddering up until bam, and you will know when you get there, you will hit, you will hit something in the conversation that they haven't ever said before, or it's never been written down before. And then you kind of start back coming down, you have finally gotten to the root of like, I'm trying to get more customers, or I'm trying to like, stop wasting money buying the wrong quantity of stuff for my widgets. And like, I can't keep stockpiling this and whatever, like, you, you hit it and then you can start coming back down about into solution mode or, and, and that kind of thing. But these skills are, I, I feel are not readily hired for in the space. So is this a training thing? Is this a bring different kinds of people in thing? Where is there a, the, the teams that you talk to that are doing this well, what made it scrappy? Like, do I, I'm looking for the word scrappy in my resumes. Am I looking for someone more interested in learning? Like, how do you find scrappy people? What does that look like? Yeah, hiring for scrappy. That's the next blog yeah. post. It's a great question. And I think I see it in my mind's eye more than I can get the words out because it's it's this sort of restless energy you see in people. Yeah. It's this, this light in their eye. I've often said that my favorite people in the room, wherever I am, aren't the smartest. It's the most curious, yeah. right? So if you're hiring a data scientist and they aren't asking, questions like who's your worst business user like why are yeah. what's their biggest challenge what's the biggest market opportunity you haven't hit what's the thing your customers love about you what's the thing your customers hate about you if they aren't asking questions that are oriented towards your business and they're just asking can i use r can i use python do you have snowflake like yeah. they should ask those things that's okay that's fine right they want to know yeah. that they're going to be in an environment which they feel capable and able and they're going to have fun in and all that stuff. But man, if, if they aren't interested in like, what problem are you trying to solve? What have you tried yeah. before? What has worked? What hasn't worked? Who can I talk to? Who in the firm is, is successful? I saw this thing in GitHub. Is this what you're talking about? Like you want this sort of constant 
why, right? The toddler thing, why, yeah. why, why? So hiring for Scrappy, maybe Scrappy is not the right word. Maybe curious is the right word. Yeah. Constantly engaged. In some sense, you also have to, you have to nurture that curiosity as well. I work with some universities. We do some information exchanges and stuff like that. And I think most of them are getting better at this. But about five years ago when data science was just this thing, which was, of course, your university, you're going to have a degree for data science because it's just going to have tons of enrollees. They were getting the wrong questions from their business community partners about, I need somebody who can do R, I need somebody who can build ML, da, 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 da. and that's yeah. what they gave them. So us in the industry, we went to our university partners and said, I need more data people. And yeah. so they manufactured data people in, in MBA programs yeah. and certificate programs. And then we went, these people are horrible. Yeah, They, they don't work. And then people have recently gone back to, to the universities, and I know a couple of the universities who put a lot of emphasis on Design thinking, one of our favorites, right? The ever, ever, ever present Bill Schmarzo. But other universities mm -hmm. as well are really going, oh, wait a second. They definitely need to know how to code. They definitely need to know how cloud works. They definitely need to know R and Python. All good. But unless we can find a way to help them nurture that curiosity to be extremely interested in business problems, it's one of the reasons I think actually successful data scientists can also be found in those hackathons, right? Look for the person that came up with a creative solution, even if it failed miserably, right? They yeah. totally forgot the technology bottlenecks. They totally forgot that, but they were eminently interested in a creative solution. I think that's another opportunity as well. So I think it is training. I think it is hiring. I think it's giving our feedback to our, our academic partners that we overcorrected for hardcore uh, data tech chops, and we need them to come back and give us some God help everyone, humanity studies in the, uh, in, in the data world. Having been in the space for many years at this point and not coming at it from a technology side, my general feeling of the, the clients I talk to and people is that nobody has a shortage of the right technical intelligence or tools for the most part, like that's all there. Maybe they could have more, you know, more muscle, but they've already have muscle. They're strong there. It's deploying it in a way that produces some desirable change. That's usually a change someone else wants because most of these teams are in a service. They should be in a, a service mentality, right? We're here to serve others to make their work better. The sales team, the marketing, the finance or whatever. We're not here in and of ourselves, but that's not happening. And so the, some of these questions that you're the things you're talking about, I think are really important. And you know, analytics don't ever really answer the why part of this kind of research. And you have to go out and do one-on-one -on -one ethnographic research. You need to live with a salesperson for a while. You need to go see what does the supply chain manager do all day long? Like if you've never done anything with supply chain, the chance of you repeatedly delivering value to that person is going to be very low. So yeah, that my perspective is, is that how, how can you possibly, even if you're smart, it's not, if you're so smart, you should understand how the chance of you doing that well is going to be really low because you know what you don't know, which is nothing about supply chain stuff. So go over there and ask them to spend a day together and understand what it's like. How did you make a decision? How did you know how many clips to buy for your widget last year? How did you know that? Two million was the number that we need for our other widget that we make. They made a decision somehow. Like, that curiosity, I think, has to be there in order for you to optimize. And if you don't care, it's just like, I don't know, <laughs> is this crazy? But I just, to me, it's so obvious that you can't possibly repeatedly do great work if you don't know who you serve and you don't know what it's like to be them and you don't know what keeps them up at night and you don't know how to make them shine and realize that if they're happy, they're going to say, yes, please give me some more. Can you also do this? Can you make it faster? Can you make it better? Can I do it on my own without you? Those are great signs. But they're not easy to get to. I think you've said a couple of real gems in there. I want to pull a couple apart, really, right? So firstly is to all the, the data folks out there who are definitely better at data science than I and, and programming and all that stuff. I will, I will say a small contradiction against what you said, Brian. You actually can be a good partner. You can be good. I mean, you'll be exceptionally average for a very long time, but you will never be great. You will never, ever, ever be great until you deep dive and get that understanding of mm -hmm. the drivers of that person's satisfaction or dissatisfaction. So 
I think that the challenge is that what I would say to people is if you feel like you're doing a good job, think about what we talk about all the time, which is the potential of data to transform. So how could good be transformative? It simply cannot be transformative. And the missing variable is what you say, which is going to the end user. I don't mind using internal customers. I think it's fine, but whatever you want to use doesn't matter. The people who really suffer on a daily basis to this. And the other thing I'll say, I don't know what your experience is, but we did this a couple of times. We did it when we, we were a very small central organization. We would go out to country organizations to learn more because something sometimes it operates, different companies operate differently at different countries for whatever reason, or functional organizations. You're going to have fun, actually. You're going to have a lot of fun because there's two things. First off, if you're being sent there, chances are that people need your help. How cool is that to go in and to be able to help someone? The other thing is you're going to, if you're a data person and you're probably a very eager learner, right? So you're going to learn things you don't know. And you, they're not they're questions you don't even know to ask. Yeah. So how cool is that, right? So one, it's the path from good to great is actually to get integrated. Two, it's a crap ton more fun. Three, if you want to be super career ambitious about it, the beautiful thing about being a data person, you're normally working with people who are three or four levels up the corporate hierarchy to you. So why not learn what it's like in that rare air? Why not learn what it is really yeah. like to own a P&L and to be responsible for a large amount of headcount? Because chances are you're smart, talented, educated, and ambitious, and you might want to continue to be that in the data realm. But if you are going to be that in the data realm, eventually you're going to be responsible for managing people. You're going to have some component of a P&L ownership. And the sooner you learn that, the better. So get some really cool, smart people, solve a problem for them, make them happy, and then go to them and say, hey, Brian, I really admire your career. Could you tell me a little bit about what you've done? Yeah. And you would be amazed how much faster you will grow over the person who's just said, oh, I'm just going to continue to build bigger algorithms with more data and more sophistication. So there's lots of reasons to do it whether it's the fun of an interesting question, whether it's the emotional feeling you should get if you help someone, that should be something that should motivate most humans, or yeah. whether it's furthering your career ambitions. And it doesn't have to be one or the other, it can be all three. So there's no downside. I don't understand where the hesitation comes from. Yeah. And the only thing I might hypothesize is be prepared to be humbled. Yeah. I know, for example, some of the early analytics products that I did I thought were super smart. And then you can have a senior who's been experienced and said, yeah, but you forgot that. Oh, yeah. How could I forget that? Well, you could forget it because you just didn't know it. So yeah. now you know it. So it yeah. is a little humbling, but it's mostly hugely rewarding to get involved in, in the real heart of the business, I think. Yeah. Well, it's also, you know, for engineers and people that make it's a lot more fun to make stuff that gets used. I mean, just it's at the simplest level, like the fact that someone cared and it didn't just get shelved. And especially when you spent six months, half your year on this thing and your performance review is tied to it. It's just more enjoyable to work on it when someone's happy and like says, wow, this is great. Like, can you do this too? Could you give us this? Can you change the period? Can you give us a whatever? That feels better. Not having to rewrite, not just tossing it. You know, it's like, you know, Let's see if he, so it's a little almost self-interest there, right? Like you're looking, still looking at it, what it's good for you. But that model is also about serving somebody else. But if we have to start even at that level, it's like, just do it because it's better for you. Like to see your work live, you know, <laughs> I talked a little bit about kind of this product thinking approach and, and design thinking and some of this. Can you tell me a little bit about like in your perspective, what does that mean or what, what's the difference between that and the maybe the status quo or the regular the regular way people do stuff? Why does it matter to IAA? Why do you guys care about it at all? Yeah, no, sure. So we uh, so a few things. Firstly, is we are far from as well educated, trained, and capable as you are on product thinking. So we we probably okay. might use some words wrong for some of your audience. And no, that's okay. Rotten tomatoes can come my way. It's okay. So a few motivations on product thinking, as you mentioned, you met David Ellis in the hallway. I'm sure one of the reasons he was excited to talk to you is he's jazzed on product thinking. Yeah. Um, his learning comes out of running this uh, part of our business called the assessment business, where we have a very large survey we do with these very big companies. 
and we do some benchmark studies for best in class. And whether it's companies we've examined ourselves or company we've used some external surveys for best in class, companies that refer to and build teams around analytics products tend to outperform those in the marketplace by a pretty substantial degree. You can look at reference companies, whether that's Amazon or Starbucks or whatever, it doesn't matter. Or you can just sort of think about those examples we used earlier, right? Netflix, et cetera. So there is empirical evidence that says a product orientation company will outperform a different. Now let's talk about what the different is. What we often see set against the concept of a product is a project. So a start and a finish, mm-hmm. a brief and a handoff, all these sort yeah. of classic things. And we don't yeah. even need to go into the whole waterfall curse word and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And what we see, what I see markedly different in the reason I'm super interested in product thinking, maybe not even necessarily the, the regiment of it, the product thinking is the notion that success comes when the thing gets used and the person who uses it says, I'm happy to use it, give me more, as you said. Yeah. Um, so that's an, that's a virtue of a product for me. And you only get there if you think about the model as a product. The other thing is that a product, especially in a digital environment, but true in a real environment as well, right? I mean, I had a 1996 Toyota Corolla, and I can tell you the 2021 Toyota Corolla is slightly better than the 96 Corolla, right? <laughs> but in, in digital products, you can make those improvements not over decades, but over days, So also product thinking starts with the assumption that this is a good product and it's usable and it's making our business better, but it's not finished in that sense. It's a continuous loop. It's feeding back in data through its exhaust. It's the user is using it maybe even in ways I didn't imagine. And those ways are better than I imagined or worse than I imagined or different than I imagined, but they inform the product. So, We like it because one, we know empirically it works and we like it because we think it instills that utility thinking into data teams in a regimented way. And if you want to take the next level down, those who are willing to be more serious than just product thinking can very quickly through your work and other people's work, find frameworks, team structures, role descriptions that will support that thinking. So to us, it's a relatively well mapped out field through software. I mean, software first, and then it kind of found its way into data. So it's already a proven method that works and uses data at its core. So why are you going to sit around and look for something else when you got something that works? So we're we're big fans of that uh, in that way. And we also think if I had one more thing, really interested in your feedback on my inaccurate answer but i think that the role uh the role not a job title not a human but the role of someone who maybe is a product manager or even maybe over several products is also really inspirational and really useful because that is the person who says together with the the user yes this thing works but it could work better and especially when you start to think about data products with a plural on it The beautiful thing is so many of those products have the same underlying infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. So a churn model versus a retention model in marketing is the same thing flipped on its head. So the fundamentals of those two data products are the same, slightly different math, maybe slightly different UI and orientation and all that stuff. But isn't that great? Somebody looks at those two things and makes an improvement on one that makes an improvement on the other, an improvement on one that makes improvement on the other and so forth and so on. So I'm really interested because I think it has an ability to solve this problem that we started with, right? Which is why don't things get used? Because people start with the wrong mindset. But if you start with a product mindset, I think you're in a way better position. I do too. And I'm I'm always suspicious of seeing the world through the lens of like, not only something that I consult in, but just because that's the world I know and I live in. But when I hear companies are always... They're envious of the digital natives and the startup that's going to eat their lunch and all this. And I'm like, you copied everything about what they do with engineering and data stuff. And you copied none of the roles like product designers, UX researchers, and product managers who actually sit above all of that and make sure that there's a value delivery that happens, that the strategy is right. Just as you talked about, 
which things go in the backlog? Is this going to support both the churn and the retention model? Am I giving love to one department here? What's the business cost of doing it that way? And I am seeing that change. This data product manager or product owner role seems to be emerging. Sometimes it has the word AI in it, which I think is okay in some places. I have some issues with that because it suggests it suggests a technique built into the title, which may not always be the thing you need, but you, you need the skill of product management, but you don't necessarily need AI for everything, but that's a minor detail, I guess. Do you think that's it's somewhere as simple as that, where they're not copying all of the models of the way some software companies work, but they want to be like them? I don't know if it's that simple, but I, I do see that as part of it. Less about hiring the bodies as much as like rapid pace of learning, focus on delivering something, getting feedback. And those companies, they all, everyone has their challenges with, with doing this model, but there is an interest in understanding the problem space, shipping small iterations, which aren't the same as increments of work, but iterations of work and the feedback loop of understanding why and that hammering away at the problem space. It's more that, as you said, it's not the titles, I guess, and the, the individual human beings as much as the, the roles and the responsibilities. Is that, you know, I don't know if there was a question in there, but I wonder if they're just half copied the model, you know, no, no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. I think obviously people are biased to pick and choose the things that sure. that don't threaten them. Right. So yeah. if you think about product thinking, there's really no threat to a marketing manager on product thinking because someone is yeah. just giving them help in a different way. Right. I think what they haven't been willing to do is go the full Monty. And I do also caution all of us, myself included, and you as well. Right. Software can be inspirational, but we should be careful. It's not a dead on co- people don't try to dead on copy and paste, right? It is it is a mm-hmm. slightly different world. The software yeah. is the product, when in mm-hmm. reality, a data product oftentimes informs the product or makes the product better. And so, how do we want to think about that? I mm-hmm. think you you need to put a people do need to put a little thinking into the adaptation. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I think by and large, this is goes back to what I was saying in terms of some things being pulled out of the central analytics function. Yeah. I think that when we pull out of the central analytics function and we go more to a hub and spoke, which by the way, is the model used at places like Amazon, et cetera, what you will find is somebody is taking more ownership for the outcome closer to how the outcome is used. And that's what software does better, I think, than the current way that it's done in the productization of data analytics. So. I yeah, think there yeah. needs to be a little bit less of a insulation between the data product and then the person who uses that data product in their daily work. Yeah. And I think the two things will happen. I think first off, we talked a lot about the ed- education of data people, but the truth is also if you're getting an MBA with a focus on marketing, you're getting hardcore data chops probably much more than somebody did as little as five years ago. So that person's going to come in and they're going to go, yeah, no, I, I'm the product manager of the yeah. churn model. Yeah. I need these following roles. I'm not a data scientist, so I need one of those. I need an ML engineer because I think we have the possibility to do it in machine learning, blah, blah, blah. And then the central data person says, yeah, no, you're not going to get an ML engineer because you're not, but that discussion can happen yeah. because the starting point was, yeah, I'm the product manager. I'm the, mm-hmm. the churn model product manager. And I have demands towards the organization to support me with roles and structures that enable me to create that. Right now, it's kind of pushing that concept towards people who don't really see themselves as the product owner, if you will, of the churn model. No, I'm in charge of customer retention. Yeah, I agree. And one of your roles is own the churn model. Right. Um, again, it's not a job title. It's just a role. Yes, we need yes. you to make sure yeah. we keep as many customers as possible. And if if that's calling people and saying, we love you, please stay with us. Or if it's whether you're getting support from the analytics team to build out a, a sophisticated model to know who to call, don't really care as long as you take responsibility for not only the big umbrella thing, but the components beneath. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm with you. I think it's understanding that someone does need to own those decisions and that you'll have a better outcome with that is the first step, whoever it is, wherever they report, <laughs> you know, you know, all of that. I do wonder sometimes about certain business stakeholders ability to properly quote product own something like a churn model. If they don't have some type of software background, they may have some data background, but if they haven't built software before, 
I think there has to be a good handoff or a negotiation or conversation between people that know how to do that and that role. And it's not something that they can't learn it, but that could become your whole job. Just monitor. I mean, that, that at the enterprise scale, like that could be a standalone product that could be an entire business potentially. I mean, I'm seeing this happen with some of my seminar students, you know, it's just like we built this thing in house and then we showed it to our partners and they all want to use it now in their own stack. And it's like, you could, that's like an entire startup business, just that one project you guys did. But that means you need all the support that comes with that. You need to think about, it has to have legs. What, what it goes wrong? Like there's all those things you have to think about there. So, I mean, we could go to a whole another branch with that, but I, I don't have you forever. And I wanted to, you know, first of all, I love this conversation. It's been fantastic. But I wanted to ask you, do you, given that you've, you've been in the field for a while, when you look back, is there, is there any big thing that you changed your mind about with analytics or data where you did a 180 or maybe not even entirely a 180, but like you really changed something? I'm always interested in how people make changes, but. Yeah, yeah. Change is a fascinating subject. One little factoid on that one. I always love the fact that when people have really bad heart conditions, like really bad, like you're going to mm -hmm. die. Two thirds of those people do not change their diet or routine. Mm -hmm. So the uptake of that is that two thirds of people choose death over change. Yeah. Is that a commercial? <laughs> is that your new product commercial? Two thirds choose death over. <laughs> <laughs> what would you be selling? I'm not quite sure. But yeah. no, but isn't that fascinating? So the human brain, which yeah. we are still dealing with, right? All the data in the world, we're still eventually hitting the human brain, has a tendency not to change. So that's to sort of say, the answer to your question is probably not as much as I should have, Brian. I think- yeah. The organizational model is one of them. And I'll tell you that it was a little bit of reflection why I came away from a strong faith in central analytics. And that is, I might have, this is like the most evasive political answer ever. I might have been <laughs> one of those people who sometimes do look upon building a large organization as a measure of success. So central analytics organizations that get up to like 200, 300, 500, 5,000 people, that's a really celebrated role. I mean, you are, you are at the, the top of the corporate mountain, but you're not doing the company any good. You're starving the rest of the organization of data and analytics talent. So I have made a bit of a 180 to say, that is a real short-term thing. You have to go through central analytics if you're early in your journey, because you do need to consolidate some critical things, data infrastructure, data governance, et cetera. But if you allow yourself to stay there, you need to sit back and reflect why you're there. Is it your ego, as it might've been in my case? Is it a lack of trust to the business owners, which it also could have been? You need to do some reflection and figure out because it's gonna be unhealthy long-term. So that's one thing I flipped on. One thing I've become more convinced of, actually, you didn't ask that question, but I'm a politician, so I'm gonna answer it anyway. I'm super convinced that there is this interesting, ironic thing where as the roles become more specialized, the leadership needs to become more generalized. It sounds ironic or paradoxical or whatever the fancy word for it is, but I think when I talk to people who are able to, and we have a couple of experts in the network, who are able to talk really deeply about using very, very large volumes of data to build very sophisticated machine learning programs. They very quickly go into a space where I've been in rooms with like 50 people, most of whom are smarter on this stuff than I, but they're quickly, they're gone. No one follows them anymore. That doesn't mean what they're saying isn't important and doesn't have value because I've seen the output of their work so I think it increasingly becomes important that as that specialization increases, people who have an ability to get those specialized people to work effectively together, especially different personalities, an ML engineer and a product manager, right? Or an ML engineer and a data scientist or a data analyst or whatever, it doesn't matter, UX, UI. That will become a really interesting skill set for me. And I, I always have believed that that has big potential, but in data, I think it increasingly has bigger and bigger potential and people should make that choice in their career. Am I going to be the most brilliant ML engineer or am I going to learn enough about these different roles such that I'm going to be a fantastic manager and enable those three, four, 10, whatever people to work so well together that the sum of their parts 
is far exceeded by the whole, right? You know, that, that, that classic trope. So I think that that's something that I really am interested to see develop. Uh, but no, I flipped on the organization. I've not really flipped on my obsession that technology will not save us. I might have to come back to you because I think I must have changed my mind on more things and forgotten or, <laughs> or did the usual human thing and pretended I always believe that other way. Right, right. I don't remember that I didn't think that in the past. <laughs> well, if someone wanted to challenge you and find out where, where would they go to ask you about all your faults and the things that you were wrong about? You mean, you mean group therapy? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, there's lots of places to find me. Uh, the best place to find me is through my company email address, which is dsmith at iianalytics.com. You can find some blogs at iianalytics.com. You can find me uh, on LinkedIn as well, especially if you're connected to Brian. Brian and I are connected and, and often in the same thread. So lots of places yeah, to yeah. find me. And I love, I love a good challenge. I think one of the things I most love about interacting with you and a lot of our folks in the space is not shy of opinions at the same time, not too arrogant to be unwilling to listen. And that's yeah. a really enjoyable environment for me. Drew, it's been great chatting with you and thanks for the work that you're doing. And I'll definitely uh, link all that stuff up. Any last words before we call it a wrap? No, it's been fantastic. I really enjoy following everything you're doing and look forward to following more. Great. Sounds good. Well, I'll definitely, like I said, I'll link that stuff up. IIanalytics.com is uh, International Institute for Analytics work. Check out the ALC that Drew runs, Analytics Leadership Consortium. Not too many TLAs on this show. <laughs> and with that, Drew, thank you again for coming. And we'll see you on LinkedIn, if not at a conference, maybe in real life someday. <laughs> Ooh, looking forward to it. All right. Bye-bye, Brian. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag experiencing data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.